Welcome to our podcast. This is Ed Gunger. We're starting a conversation today about the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, which also become a reference point for having any kind of ecumenical discussion with other churches. Being ecumenical just simply means that we're committed to moving towards, not away from, other people who share the faith. There really should be something in every believer's heart that's pro that, right? That we want to see more visible unity. It, it kind of steps into the cry of Jesus in John 17, right before he enters his passion, where he's saying that we, that to, speaking of the church, that they may all be one. And, and, and really in the deepest and truest sense of the word one, Jesus asked that we would be one as he and his father are one. The Anglican Communion has given the church at large a real gift through a work they refer to as the quadrilateral. This is a four-point articulation of Christian doctrine. It sort of encapsulates the essence of a Christian's identity. And these four points reflect what the historical church has appealed to for its authority. Now, before I state them uh, or share them with you, reflect for a moment on what your response would be if someone asked you, what is the basis of the Christian faith? If you're like most Protestants, you would respond, the Bible, the Word of God. It may surprise you, though, that that is not the way church members before the Reformation would have responded. They would have said that the foundation of the Christian church is the person of Jesus Christ, as he is revealed through the scriptures, they always include scripture, but also the creeds, sacraments, the church's ordained clergy who are asked to ensure that we're living a faith that is faithful to the early apostolic tradition and that we would the clergy would keep that tradition intact as the clergy passed it on to the next generation. So here are the four points of the quadrilateral. Number one, the scriptures, as I just stated which were believed to contain all things necessary uh, to salvation. And then the creeds, specifically the apostles, the Nicene creeds. And they were seen as sufficient, the sufficient statement of the Christian faith. And that was the gospels, the gospel sacrament, excuse me, the gospel sacraments of water, baptism, of holy communion. Uh, these sacraments, they, they created the basis for all emerging Christian theology, that the, the theologies that were in place even before the first New Testament texts were even written. And then fourthly, that fourth kind of uh, leg to the stool, if you will, is the historic episcopate. That, that refers to this group of bishops and priests or presbyters or pastors, and then people that would serve as deacons or deaconesses. This historic episcopate, these were the ones who were entrusted that uh, by the apostles, trained by the apostles. Uh, and then those that group started learning of and training those who followed after them to make sure that uh, the following generations would keep the faith, not make it up. And it was a leadership structure that was to be locally adapted within the context of each local church. So this fourfold iteration is what the historical church appealed to. It had scripture, certainly, centrally, but not just scripture. But today we want to focus on scripture and why sacred text is so critical to the Christian church. But let me say this first about the Bible in general. 
The Bible has been the number one best-selling book since it came off the Gutenberg Press in 1454. The English word Bible is from the Latin word Biblia, which actually means the books, plural, not just the book. And it points to the fact that the Bible is not a single book, but an anthology of books or a bunch of books. The list of books included in the Bible vary uh, between various Christian traditions. So the Protestant Bible, which is post-Reformation, has 66 in both the Old Testament and New Testament. The, New Ca- the, the Roman Catholic Bible, or the Latin Catholics, have 73 books. The Eastern Orthodox have 76, and the Ethiopic Orthodox Bible has 81 books that they include in the Old and the New Testaments. I'll explain why that's like that in a few minutes. These texts were produced by more than 40 different writers over some 1,600 years. Each of those writers were coming from varying political, cultural, economic, sociological conditions, just all kinds of places. They were judges, some were sheep herders, priests, statesmen, kings, poets, musicians, philosophers, some farmers, tax collectors, physicians, tent makers, fishermen, etc. And the texts were written while these authors were in various places, palaces, prisons, and cities in the wilderness, rural places, in times of war, in times of peace, and uh, during a host of other kinds of circumstances. And the writings include a potpourri of genres, right, including historical narratives, which just sort of list one event to the next in a kind of a historical way, genealogical lists, where they start listing who came from who came from who, poetry, uh, aphorisms. These are like these short, pithy statements that you find in Proverbs or in Ecclesiastes, where it says there is a time and a place for everything. Or Jesus, when he says, don't cast your pearls among the swine, these are called aphorism, pithy uh, statements. There are prophecies, uh, parables, sermons, letters, songs, apocalypses. These are the writings that give us kind of a glimpse into the world of the Spirit that we cannot see with our natural eyes. You find that in places like Daniel, the book of Revelations, where you read about what angels are doing, what's happening behind the scenes that people can't see. Those are called apocalypses. The Christian tradition sees the Bible as a collection of authoritative texts that have divine origin. But even though they have divine origin, the acknowledgement has always been that it has come to us through a human process of writing, editing. No no credible person who has studied how sacred texts emerge historically believes that the Bible sort of fell from heaven one day or that it was found as a perfect bound book with gilded edges, you know, and shrink-wrapped at the foot of the cross. No Gideons were passing out New Testaments. But many believers today have little awareness of the human involvement that was present in both the production and the organization of the Bible. And so instead of exploring how in the world can the divine message actually come through flawed human capacities, uh, some people just don't pay attention to it. and They just embrace some kind of a myth that the Bible is divine all by itself. Once the biblical writings were encountered, that they carried this kind of identifiable, um, inherent, supervening power and goodness that everybody just immediately immediately recognized. But that's just not the truth. I mean, it's simply not true. That first generation of Christians, they had no New Testament. I mean, they had what we later called the Old Testament, the writings, but they were only interested in them because 
They were looking for how they spoke of Jesus. Their real interest was in Jesus. He was the Word of God. And their interest in the Old Testament began as trying to find how he was embedded in those texts. You know, like Jesus would say things like, as Moses put the um, uh, serpent on the pole, and then he speaks that somehow that was reflective of what the story of Jesus was about, how he would be crucified. Um, These kinds of images uh, Jesus would do caused them to run back to the Old Testament and look for ways that he was hidden in those texts. And so uh, they don't have any Gospels. Their Gospel of Mark was dated 66 to 60 or to 70 AD is when they, the scholars say believe it was written. Matthew was written somewhere between 80 and 90 AD. This is at least a generation, maybe two, after Jesus has died. Luke doesn't appear till 80 or to 110. John doesn't appear somewhere between 80 and 100 AD. So their word of God, again, was the person of Jesus. Now, they certainly had many of the writings of Jesus that were written down. They weren't, they weren't uh, it, it, you know, put, ported into the narratives of the Gospels and the stories that the Gospels carried, but they had writings. So those writings were called the agrapha. Those are the sayings of Jesus. So the Gospel narratives that first started out as oral traditions using the sayings of Jesus, this agrapha, and then the agrapha, they were woven into narratives later in the first century um, into these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And actually, it was with some resistance from the church because they didn't like written down things. They wanted it to be oral and alive uh, uh, instead of written. And, And it was only after the oral tradition that we finally get what's known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John's. Not all the agrapha, these writings or sayings of Jesus that were written down, were included in the Gospels. We have an example of that in Acts 20 and verse 35. It says, in everything I did, this is Paul, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, and how he said, quote, it is more blessed to give than to receive, he quotes Jesus, end quote. So here's a saying that was around and people knew about that did not end up in any of the Gospels. You can't find it in any of the four Gospels. And there are still some 266 lines of agrapha, these sayings of Jesus, that we have. It's called extant. We have them. Uh, they're not included in any of the Gospels. You can Google that stuff and, and find them the agrapha. None of them, this is good news, of those 266 that are around, uh, give us any understanding of Jesus that changes what we already have, what we see in the gospel, so it's not really important. The major understanding of that first generation or two of Christians, of the new, un- of the new creation, of us being in the new era, um, was put in place in their minds, housed in what they knew the work of Christ was, what they'd hear about it, and through the reports, these firsthand reports of the apostles, and, or what they personally experienced, and then the sayings of Jesus. Beyond that, the very beginning of the church, we know baptism is introduced. So the implications of that, the the theological trajectories of baptism began to be explored. That's a lot of Paul's writings is about that. And then the Eucharist. They always celebrated the Eucharist and what the nature of baptism, um, 
re-identified them, the, the radical sacrifice of Jesus that they were separating or that they were um, celebrating uh, as they did the Eucharist was really a call for them to live in the world in a, in a, in a similar fashion. They were supposed to be kind of a Eucharistic people who uh, were both, one, identified with Christ through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Christians through baptism, and then two, were to participate in the life of Christ, his sacrifice and giving, being willing to give themselves uh, for the sake of others. This is the kind of stuff that framed their spirituality. They weren't reading the New Testament or the Bible every day. Both the Old and the New Testaments start as oral traditions, we know, and then eventually make their way into written texts as time went on. And there were dozens of writings beyond what we currently have and understand as the New Testament swirling around the church in the first and second centuries that the churches actually loved and fed on. There were dozens of writings, Didache, Barnabas, Ignatian letters, Letter of Polycarp, Shepherd of Hermas, that was a book that was included in earlier lists of sacred texts that they thought of as canon. We'll come back to that in a second. But uh, uh, eventually fell out of use. The Shepherd of Hermas would have made the New Testament a third larger. And there were numbers of Gospels that never made it into the canon. Uh, uh, the Signs Gospel, the Gospel of Thomas, Egerton Gospel, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of the Egyptians, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Perfection, a whole bunch of uh, the Gospel uh, um, of, uh, the, of the infancy of Jesus, these infancy Gospels which really followed Jesus' life as a child. And so on. And there were scads of other writings that the church loved um, that never ended up in the canon. Acts of Paul, Acts of Peter, Secret Mark, Apocalypse of Adam, the Protoevangelium of James. This is, um, it details the actual birth of Jesus, which is kind of a cool book to read. Again, you can Google that. Many of these were never seriously considered to become part of the canon, but they were still used extensively in the church for encouragement and strengthening. We finally landed on 27, the 27 books of the New Testament that we currently have, and all traditions have it, the difference in lengths uh, of the Bible, uh, whether it's Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholic or Protestant or whatever, is not because of the New Testament. It's because there are different books that are held sacred from the Old Testament. Um, but the 27 that we've landed on as canonical globally with the church, historically with the church, <clears throat> took centuries for them to make that final decision. And it's one of the great accomplishments uh, was this gradual consensus that came over what the term scripture even designated. The scripture is basically texts written down that become normative for belief, normative for practice of a believing community. By accepting some writings into a collection and rejecting others, Christians really formed what we call the written canon. The word canon actually comes from the Greek, and it means a rule or a measuring stick. The canon or collection of writings became, and don't be thrown by this as a Latin phrase, it became the norma normans non normata. <laughs> the norma normans non normata. It, it, it means, and this is a little about as, uh, as uh, about as opaque as the Latin, it becomes the unnormed norm normer, or more loosely, the norm of norms that is not normed. In other words, what it's saying is that this canon becomes the standard by which everything is measured, but it is not measured by anything itself. 
maybe a helpful way to think about this is think about the inch, right? You use the inch to measure things and to adjust accordingly. But the inch itself is not under scrutiny. The inch is not being measured in order to be adjusted. The inch is just the inch. It's the unnormed norm normer. Okay. So canon came to be known as this set of writings that set the boundary for the Christian church and was thereby authoritative for issues of belief, issues of practice of life, worship, etc. But once the canon was settled, it didn't mean that Christians would only read the canon. It meant that those canonical texts were the ones that were the inch, right? They were God's uh, gold standard, the good housekeeping seal. Every other writing needed to fit in to it, not contradict what was held in the canon. The decision as to which books were canonical wasn't finally settled until 367 AD. Think of that. Nearly 400 years after Jesus' resurrection. I mean, America's just 150 years old. So it was settled by this writing from Bishop Athanasius. Where they used to write, the, the bishops used to write Easter letters. And this is the 39th festal, festal means Easter, letter of Athanasius in 367. And there, the 27 books are settled. Now, obviously, they had those books, those New Testament texts circulating widely, even from the you know beginning or end or middle of the second century, to be sure. But there were many more than 27 at the time. So if Scripture doesn't get settled until nearly 500 years later, what kept them together in those early centuries? What what gave the church a sense that they were being faithful to Christ and faithful to the gospel? The answer is the quadrilateral, which included scripture. They had it. That wasn't totally settled. The creeds, which gave them a kind of bottom line of all their belief. The sacraments, which we'll talk about in later podcasts. And the episcopacy, this group of people that were clergy trained that would hold intention, not only what was given uh, from the apostles, but making sure it's passed on to those that were to come. Now, thank God we have this scripture at our fingertips today. I mean, to whom much is given, much is required. But recognize that most people living in the ancient world did not have books, and they could not read, even if they had books. They were illiterate. That doesn't change until the 15th century. That's after the Gutenberg uh, press is up and running. And even then, in the 15th century, only we have records that only 10% of Europe were a, a reading public, m- m- almost no women. And most of that 10% were clergy or people that worked in government or people that worked in uh, business or merchant uh, stuff. Today, many think Bible reading is absolutely critical to spirituality. And I, and I do think it's critical, but... Um, it was really always considered critical by the church that people heard the Bible, not necessarily that they could read it privately. At least no one was doing that for the first 1,700 years of the church, and the church survived. Believers encountered the Bible at church. This is why portions, sometimes large portions, were read and sermons kept using Scripture extensively. It was heard more than it was read, and, it, and that worked. I'm not trying to discourage you from reading your Bible. I'm trying to say that uh, things have not always been as they are today. The historical position on the Bible and the church is that Scripture is central and critical for all matters of faith and conduct, 
and serves as the measure, remember the canon, the measure for faithfulness. Somehow hearing it fosters faith. In Romans 10, it says that faith comes when we hear God's word. How cool is that? So if you want to grow in faith, listen more to sacred text. 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is God-breathed. I love that. Sometimes it's so sweet when you love someone to be close enough to feel their breath. And if you want to be close enough to feel God's breath, lean into scripture. And the text says it's useful. This God-breathed thing is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting, getting things right, training in rightness and righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is why almost every word of the historical liturgy, if you look at any of the liturgies that we do and have been done since the first century, are liturgies jammed with Scripture or some reflection on Scripture. And as we prayerfully learn from the Scripture, the Holy Spirit uses it to teach us, to rebuke us sometimes when we need rebuking, to correct and train each of us to live in a way that is really free and full of grace. The scriptures nourish our souls toward the service of God, the service of neighbor. Uh, one of the joys of the BCP, the Book of Common Prayer, instructs us in scripture over and over, all through it. And it actually says, that we are to, quote, hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Scripture so that by patience and the strengthening through God's Word, we may be able to embrace and cling to the hope of everlasting life given to us in Jesus Christ, end quote. This is to say that every Christian should come to love the Bible. All the way back to Deuteronomy, it says that God wanted to teach human beings, but that we cannot live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quoted that passage in his preaching. The church has believed that sacred text is in some way alive, that it <laughs> cuts us open using language like um, the language of sacrifice from the Old Testament, where they would open up an animal. And not only the animal would they open up, they'd bring out the different uh, organs and cut those open and lay them open before God. And the text is Hebrews 4, where it says, For the word of God is alive and it's active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. See, there's that, that sacrifice language. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And then he shifts, the writer does, to saying, not only is the scripture doing something, but the scripture in some way is God's sight. He says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare, again, that sacrificial language, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the challenge here is that God's word sort of cuts. It's alive. It cuts into us. It opens up stuff. It helps us to see what's really going on because it's pretty easy to be self-deceptive and to think, Everything's okay when it not, isn't necessarily okay. And so the scripture has this amazing way of converting us. It was always believed that the scripture was God's written word, given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and the apostles as the revelation of God and as God's acts in human history. And it's therefore the church's final authority on all matters of faith, all matters of practice. The Bible contains these two separate segments of writing, Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament contains the record of God's creation of all things, 
humankind's original disobedience, God's calling of Israel to be his people, contains God's law, God's wisdom, God's saving deeds, and the teaching of God's prophets. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ, revealing God's intention to redeem and to reconcile the world through Jesus Christ. The New Testament contains the record of that happening, of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his his death, resurrection, his ascension, and the church's early ministry, the teaching of the apostles, and the revelation of Jesus Christ's coming in the future with an eternal kingdom. So the Old and New Testament, the way they're related to each other is the Old Testament is to be read in the light of Jesus Christ, the one who's incarnate, crucified, risen. And the New Testament is to be read in the light of God's revelation to Israel. As St. Augustine says, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing, though, is that, that there are other books that the church acknowledges that are not strictly canonical. That's why you start getting differences between the Protestant Bible and the uh, Latin Catholic and Orthodox Bible, where they have more books. Where those more books come in is from other books that are called the Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical books, which just mean additional canonical books, that are to be read for example of life, for instruction on you know different matters, but not for doctrine. Uh, and to try to grasp how this works, I mean, how many of you have heard uh, preachers quote people, right? Uh, these are writings outside of the Bible that, you know, whether it's Billy Graham or N.T. Wright or, or um, Augustine or whatever, we quote, they, we, we know they're not Bible. We know they're not scripture when we quote those people, but they're deeply helpful. And as long as those writings don't violate the canon, don't violate the Bible, they're totally welcome. Well, this is kind of the idea with the Apocrypha, is that these books oftentimes are deeply insightful and and show deep piety and great examples of the saints who have trusted in God. Um, so that's cool. It's cool to read those. And, the bio, and, and you shouldn't feel weird about reading those other kinds of books. I would for a while because I thought that the Bible was the only thing I was supposed to read. So for years, even as I wanted to adult, I never read anything but the Bible. But I think that that was just a misunderstanding about what sacred text does. All right, here's some bad news as we kind of bring this around uh, about the Bible. The truth is, throughout history, many have been inspired to do wonderful things through the encouragement of the scriptures, while others, reading the exact same texts, have justified atrocities. I mean, it's hard to imagine that the same scriptures, which have really brought unspeakable comfort to countless millions, has been used to bring pain and horror and death to people. I mean, couple examples in 12th century France during what is famously called the Inquisition. The Bible was used to justify the instruments used on heretics. This is heretics were people that didn't agree with the Christians who were in charge, right? So Christian leaders actually used iron collars with spikes that were closed on the throats of these people that didn't agree with them. And they would impale their throats. And then they also used stretching machines that they would keep stretching, telling people to recant what they were saying until their Limbs were torn apart, all in the name of God, all in the name of obedience to the word of God. Sometimes people use scripture as a science book, and which was something that it was never intended to be. In the 1500s, Martin Luther, who I'm a fan of, 
weighed in on the debate about whether or not we live in this uh, solar system that has the sun at the center of it or the or the earth at the center of it. It's called heliocentric, which means the sun, or geocentric, which means the earth as the center of the solar system. If the earth is the center of the solar system, the sun is moving and the stars are moving and the earth is fixed. If, if, if the... Uh, Sun is in the center, then the sun the sun's steady, and then we move around. Well, we know now it's the it's a heliocentric uh, solar system. But listen to Martin Luther on this. He says, quote, people gave ear to an upstart astrologer, he's referring to Copernicus, who strove to show that the earth revolves, not the heavens or the firmament, the sun and the moon. This fool, he writes, wishes to reverse the entire science of astronomy. But sacred scripture tells us that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth, end quote. So he's claiming that, that it's the earth that's standing still and the sun that's rotating. So this is just a misuse of sacred text. But the point is, people do that and have done that historically and do it today. As colonists, here's a bad one, came to America, settlements sprang up from Connecticut to Maine and as the population expanded, the native remaining Native American nations in New England, including the Pequot Nation, uh, they, which was the strongest of these, actually, they came to be seen as having no benefit to the colonists whatsoever. And so in 1636, 16 years after establishing the Plymouth Colony, the Massachusetts Bay Puritans entirely, without provocation, without being threatened by the Pequot, set out to massacre an entire Pequot village. And in defending the Puritan decimation of the Pequot, Captain John Underhill wrote, listen to this, quote, Sometimes the scripture declareth women and children must perish with their parents. We have sufficient light from the word of God for our proceedings, end quote. And they completely eliminated and killed all those people. The Bible has been used to justify slavery. And during the time when slavery was legal in America, Christian ministers wrote nearly half of all the defenses for slavery, using the Bible to make their case. In 1846, Reverend Leonard Bacon wrote in defense of slavery, quote, the evidence that there were both slaves and masters of slaves and churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation that will get rid of everything, end quote. So he's basically saying, if you don't say yes to slavery, you might as well throw your Bible out. The Bible has been used to justify patriarchy or male superiority or chauvinism, right? where men are always seen to be over women. In 1869, the Reverend Justin Fulton wrote against women's right to run for offices, you know, publicly, or to be able to vote, you know, the suffrage, the suffrage issue, on the basis of the Bible. And you ladies will love this. Quote, the Bible is revealed is the revealed word of God, and it declares the God-given sphere of, of a woman. The Bible is then our authority for saying women must content themselves with a certain sphere. No one can demand the ballot for a woman. If they do, they are not the lovers of God, nor are they believers in Christ. End quote. Throughout history, the Bible has been used in good ways, but in not so good ways. 
sometimes to defend violence against racial minorities, women, Jews, abolitionists, gays. So, when you come to the Holy Scriptures, you should be a little bit careful about how you interpret them. So how should we? I mean, obviously one can use the Bible in all kinds of ways. When faced with the possibility of war, one group uses Scripture to prove we should go to war. There's just war. While another group on the other side of the ideological aisle uses the same Bible to prove we should never go to war. Here's the historical approach that I think yields the most safety when one approaches sacred text. Peter claims, the Apostle Peter, in his writing, that Holy Scripture was not given through private interpretation, which means it cannot be read or interpreted that way. It should never be translated or read or preached or taught or obeyed unless it's done by looking at the text in a kind of plain way while respecting the church's historic and consensual reading of it. In other words, how did the church see it and what did they agree that it was saying? This means that when you open your Bible, stay humble, open, and dig a bit into how the various ideas or texts have been understood through history, what's been agreed upon mostly, and it will keep you from being weird. This means you should listen and discern, with discerning ears, maybe better way to say it, those who teach you or share insights with you from the Bible. Look for, are they sharing any evidence that the church has thought about this text in this way versus them claiming that the Holy Spirit showed this to them, that this text means this, the Holy Spirit showed them when they were praying. Now, I do think the Holy Spirit can take texts out of context and speak to you. I'm, you know, the text, I am the way, the truth, and the light that Jesus said may mean something at one point in your life. It means something other at another point. The Holy Spirit has the right to do that in your life. It may mean something different to a mom than to a nuclear scientist, right? And both meanings could be true. Here's the problem. Don't universalize your unique, inspired insight. And it's okay to want to be a scholar. I mean, if you want to dig into the historical church's understanding of specific texts or study original languages and historical context, all this sort of thing, that's beautiful. But I don't think most folks have to do that. I don't think most Christians, most Christians don't have to do that any more than most Christians have to live the way people that are mon monastic, you know, that, that it lives sequestered lives where they pray all day. You know, moms can't do that. Business people can't do that. So it'd be inappropriate for them to do that. It's appropriate for some to do that. It's not appropriate for everyone to be a scholar in scripture. You don't need to do it if that's not your calling. Just look for the plain, plain reading of the text and, and wrinkle your forehead when it isn't plain. Just move on. And if you're really bothered by it, ask some questions, you know, Google some stuff, read some stuff. And, and don't just read one person. Try to see what the general sense and consensus has been. And when you read the text, just read it devotionally. Be open to the Holy Spirit uh, and let him speak to you crazy things you know, that might apply, that doesn't apply to anybody else, but it will apply in your context. This is why I love the Book of Common Prayer. Why I love, uh, you know, it, it's, it scatters, uh, it, it, it sprinkles texts in it. Um, the prayers are biblically oriented. And then the lectionary, which is this, kind of uh, pattern that churches have agreed on that you can, over three years, just read all the most important aspects of the Bible. Do that kind of stuff. And, and then just two more quick protections on that. There's a text in James 3 that says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor Bitter envy or selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. What he's saying is, 
the truth isn't just truth because it's truth, but sometimes with if you wrap it in envy or you wrap it in manipulation or you wrap it in pressure or you wrap it in violence or you wrap it in trying to control others, you actually make the truth a lie. You deny it. It's truth. He goes on, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Think of that. You can actually make the truth demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, the truth, the idea of what you think you see, is first of all pure, then peaceable, then considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of right or righteousness. See, be pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and impartial and sincere as you approach the scripture. This will keep your Bible study safe. And then lastly, don't forget the word of God isn't written as much as it's in the face of Christ. Thank God for the written word, but it finds its authority in the living Christ, not in words on a page. Jesus is the word of God. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Never let any doctrine or position based on some interpretation of a particular chapter and verse of the Bible become more important to you than Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember, it said that Jesus took Peter and John and James with him, led him up to the high mountain. They're alone. And there Jesus is transfigured before them. The word, Greek word there is metamorpho. In other words, like, like a metamorphosis of a, uh, um, a worm to a butterfly, right? That, that, that what the word means is that which is on the inside and was concealed becomes seen. Right? And so here Jesus is transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. A funny little laundry statement there. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, now let me just say this. Elijah's big time here. Moses, these are the biggies. Moses stood for the whole culture of the and the faith of the people of God. Elijah stood for the power and the working and how God did things in the world. These were the two biggies in the Jewish mind. And they're there. Peter looks up, it says, to Jesus and says in this context, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then the text says, parenthetically, he did not know what to say. <laughs> they were so frightened. So he's freaking out, right? Because here's the, the big three, Jesus, Moses, Elijah. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them. No Moses, no Elijah, just Jesus. See, however you get revelations of how you think God's moving in the world, your Elijah understandings, however you think that you understand the law and what we're supposed to act like, ethical Christianity, and what we should actually believe, the Moses kind of approach. At the end of the day, those things have to be in the background. You need to let the face of Christ be more important to you than anything you believe or anything you practice. This will keep you safe and sweet. 
Next week, we begin to examine one of the other legs of the quadrilateral, the creeds. <laughs>